millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to this episode of 20 Minute Tims. This is another feature podcast in our Project Rebuild series and on this episode I am joined by Dan Parnell. He is a senior lecturer in sport and business. He is the CEO of the Association of Sporting Directors. He's also the head of football research at Dundee United. Dan is one of the foremost authorities on sporting directorship within the UK and there's absolutely nobody better placed to join us in this podcast to talk us about the sporting director role, the challenges of the role, what Celtic need to do to get a sporting director in place and make that role work out for them, the order of placements, whether a sporting director can in fact join the club after a head coach or manager. We cover lots and this is really, really, this is one of the best podcasts I think we've done for the Project Rebuild so far. Really enjoyable and it's so good to get someone on with real expertise to answer a lot of questions for us. We hope this gives you a really good insight into the sporting director, the challenges that Celtic face and the challenges that whoever we appoint will face when we get into that role. Um, yeah, this was a really good chat, really wide-ranging chat with Dan and I hope you enjoy it. Before we begin though, just talking off mic or off air rather with Dan, whilst we were recording though, he was talking about the things he loved and so much he loved about Scottish football um, and I decided to keep that in so what you're going to hear is Dan just talking off the cuff about what he really enjoys about working with Dundee United and how he enjoys Scottish football and then we'll have a short introduction and we'll get into the actual podcast but I thought that was just so good that we had to keep it in and Dan agreed so here we are. Scottish football needs a rebrand in a in a big way but it doesn't necessarily need to change a lot of things that it does because it does a lot of amazing work and when you see some of the the boys play at some of these these smaller clubs and they're not on high wages. They're grafting, they're fighting for their opportunity. It's actually a lot of things that some of the English clubs would, would only dream of being able to replicate. You know, mm. having genuinely hungry, resilient, uh, quality football players coming through. And all we're waiting for, all we need to do is open up pathways. Pathways and opportunity would totally revolutionise and um, totally bring back, actually, the migration patterns, I don't actually necessarily want that, but I think it could be good for Scottish football to have those migration patterns of not only Scottish players coming through and getting opportunities and playing and moving on to, to, to different leagues to bring finances in to support Scottish football, but also players coming to Scotland from all around the world and using that as an opportunity to play at a quality standard and build a career and enhance what, what we're doing and what we're offering up here. So at the minute, it's not trendy. Not many people are seeing it as a trendy thing to do to come to Scottish football. But I think those that are 
that are working diligently in the game and are looking for talent. There's a lot more people coming up north and a lot more people what um, up north who are reaching out, building networks and relationships with people to to showcase the quality and the talent that we have coming through. Um, so I think it's quite an exciting time and I, I, I absolutely love being part of it because I think there's, you know, you can have a real influence and there's real opportunities there to, to grow what we've got. And you know um, much better than me, but the, I've sat in Anfield when it's been packed out for a derby um, and people don't want to admit this, but it's it's dead in Anfield. And I'm an Everton fan. It's dead in Anfield after they've sung You've never, You'll Never Walk Alone. After that, it's dead. But if you go to Tanadice for the derby and there's 11,000 people in, everyone is alive and it's mm. wild. It's absolutely wild for the 90 plus minutes. Uh, experiences that, you know, I, I bring my little boy up to see because you only necessarily get them when you're on an away day. Yeah. Well, actually, in Scotland, you can have some incredible, incredible passionate supporters that make a huge difference to the atmosphere, culture, environment, playing experience of players. And I think about when I've tried to describe it for, uh, to, to agents and players coming up here and also to to friends and, and fans and to to the lads that are coached and the young, young players down here I work with. It's just incredible. It's incredible. I want them to see it and experience it. So long... You know, can't wait for the return of fans and to see what and to feel that vibe and buzz again and the raw, raw emotion of Scottish football that we just don't we don't have down here. Don't have it in the Premier League. You just don't have it. And the, the fact there's no VARs and you can tap it <laughs> properly is a, is a massive bonus. Um, I love that. It sounds crazy. I don't know how much you watch down here, Jay, and compare it, but you can't you can't really tackle down south like you can tackle up north. Mm. It's, it's it's just. Those little things for someone who's who likes football in a in a rawer form, I miss it. I miss it, and I get a lot from from watching Dundee United and watching Scottish football. I'm joined in this episode by Dan Parnell. How are you getting on, Dan? I'm good, Jay. Thanks for having me. Not I'm, no, you're welcome. You're welcome. So I suppose uh, introductions first. Why don't you tell listeners a bit about yourself, your role, and who you are? Okay. Cheers, Jay. Um, well, I. Uh, I work at the University of Liverpool in the management school. Um, mm. I'm a senior lecturer in sport business. Um, before that, I did a, a PhD in sport and exercise science. Didn't really know what it all meant, but on the way into the interview, one of my friends said, don't worry, Dan, they'll, they'll call you a doctor when you get back <laughs> on the estate, which was which was a bonus. So I did the PhD. Uh, it took me a while. That, that involved working at Everton Football Club. Then just worked in academia and different football roles. Um and I guess relevant to this, um, I was invited to to join Manchester Met University and teach on a, a master's in sports directorship. Mm. And I always done, I've always had this approach with my students, um, but these students were slightly slightly different because they were in the elite aspects of sport and football. And I had this renewed focus on getting to know and support my students. So I went and spent time with them in their roles. Um, I went and met the people they trust and, and built a really, really positive network, met some incredible people, very fortunate to have done that. Um, and then I moved to Liverpool. So I teach on an MSE Sport Business, teach on the League Managers Association Diploma and our, our football industry's MBA, which is real world-renowned for like bringing people into the game, but also supporting people in the game. Outside of that, uh, I'm linked to the day, today. Um, I've been involved in... I'm lucky to be involved in lots of exciting work from manager recruitment, head coach recruitment, sport and director recruitment in England and Scotland. 
Um, I've got a role as head of football research at Dundee United FC, and I'm chief executive of the Association of Sport and Directors. Um, so I've got quite a, a mixed digest of, of things mm. that I do and things I'm involved in, or involved with, but ultimately like a, I teach a work of students at the same time. I make sure that I'm not teaching or talking about other people's research all the time. I make sure that I, I keep my hand in, I do good research and make sure that I know what's going on in the industry. So when I speak to my students, they're fully equipped to to make sure that they're prepared for the industry and, and what's ahead of them. I suppose, is this a new thing, the sort of mix of academia and sport? Because I, I went to university maybe eight years ago now, and it seems like, you know, from my perception of football, someone that's not really not involved in the game at all, people sort of found themselves in roles in football, coming through business or adjacent to football, but no one... I know as ever, or I'm, I wasn't aware until very recently of the of the courses that you taught at university. When did that sort of come to fruition? How did it come to fruition? The sort of at sport sporting director in academia and universities. How did that come about? Okay, great question. I actually think I'm I'm fortunate here because um, the late the late Professor Tom Riley kind of kicked off sports science and football science. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was in the maybe the late 70s, early 80s, at Liverpool John Moores University. I was lucky to to have met with Tom and have him part of, you know, an advisor for my PhD before he passed away. He was like the godfather of football science Mm. and started this work with Everton, Liverpool football clubs, uh, some fantastic old school black and white pictures of some of the work. So it must have been been the 70s maybe, um, of some of the work they were doing. So trying to take sports science and put it out in, in, in the field. Mm. In, in in the environment and I came through that that process in 2001 2003 undergraduate degree but uh, before that and around the, the same time so like 20 or 22 years ago Liverpool uh, University just up the road from us where I am now and um, they set up this football industries MBA and it was about working with the industry and equipping people to look after the, the business side of the game and we had a really, we had some really great discussions in 2008 around. Actually, we need to make sure that the sports science performance people, the coaches, are aware of the business side, and the business mm. side people understand the performance side, which is a little bit like the sporting director. And we talked about it then. You know, there's a need for a technical director course, but we just didn't do anything about it. Mm. And we started to see these people emerge, um, such as. Um, Mike Ford, who was at Chelsea, such as now John Merta, who's now uh, moved over um, and is at Manchester United as, as technical director. We started to see these people that had a performance sports science background, but move into performance management technical director type roles. So I think we've seen that a while ago. and I've been around for, for a number of decades now, and I feel like I've been very lucky to see the different sides of it from performance through to, through to commercial, but then... What academia kind of does, it kind of looks for needs and opportunities and academia, universities are, are regional, economic and, and social beasts, the powerhouses. Mm. Um, so they also need to generate income, rightly or rightly or wrongly. Um, I wish it I wish it wasn't like that. And I wish the I wish England had had the, the Scottish mod, module in terms of covering and support and education. I really do. Mm. Um so with the with the Masters in Sport Directorship for that course in particular. It, it, it was about people who were in the game, um, working at elite levels, ideally, and providing them what, what I see is generally like sports leadership. Mm. 
and try and equip them with stuff that, uh, that will help them do the role. Um, if you go in, if you meet owners, if you meet uh, directors, chief execs, sometimes we've got people that have got MBAs and I've got degrees um, and it's no use to them whatsoever. Yeah, and they, they haven't necessarily used that to 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 capitalise and improve the decision making. Sometimes they've got it, and they're incredible leaders, and they're incredible to work with, and they've got like a real understanding of of what they know and what they don't know. I think outside that, we then meet people that have had no education and support at all, and they've been thrown into the roles. Mm-hmm. And these people are really good, well-intended people, and they, and they genuinely need help and support. So I think we've started to see as the links become closer is that uh, academics that are working um, and are highly applied are trying to look for opportunities to support individuals and build like almost coalitions of, of goodwill and um, little small collective little groups, communities of practice where we can start to influence and help people become better. And ultimately, and what I'm really interested in, how do we help people make better decisions? And I think that, that, kind of surrounds a lot of the work that I do is just helping people make better decisions uh, and courses will emerge from these discussions based on the need and demand. It's it's funny you you, you know you talk about the decision making because that's something that's been principally flawed at Celtic from you know an, an external point of view um, but more widely in Scotland when we look at this the sports commentary the sports media the way people view the game it's it still seems to me as a as a, as a football fan it seems very rooted in the past and it seems that people coming out of what you would call academia or coming out with university degrees or MBAs, you know, master's degrees in, in sports directorship would be viewed with somewhat like some suspicion in the game. You know, what, what do you know? Cause you've not been a player. You've not been on the training ground. You've not been within a club. You've come straight out of university. And obviously and it, the same as any role on the job experience is invaluable. You need to get that. But have you found much resistance to the sort of academia and football thing Um down south compared to up in Scotland or just generally speaking, have you found any resistance to that sort of thing? Or are clubs who are always in the pursuit of marginal gains, as they call it now, have they always been quite open to these sorts of things? Again, Shane, that's a really good question because I think what you, what you might be talking about is a little bit of like anti-intellectualism. And yeah, totally. I think we've had, <coughs> excuse me, we've had a lot of that over maybe the past 20, 30 years Um and I think a lot of it still exists now. I think it depends, though, on... I actually think it depends on the context, and I think it depends on the researcher, and it depends on the relationship. So often um, in football, we work on people that we know, and we work on our relationships, and it's all about do we know someone and do we trust them? Mm. And that is that is often half the battle. So a lot of the, the connections that, that I have and the, the relationships that I have of I've been people who've introduced me, who I've got a relationship with, which we've worked together or I've taught them. So that changes the dynamic because straight away, when someone makes that recommendation, they're saying to you, he's all right. He's not going to be a terrorist. He's going to be able to hold his water and he's going to be useful. And those things break down this anti-intellectualism completely. However, if you go in in a fresh uh, and if, if I bring in other academics around me, then then they'll still be faced with that that challenge of trying to break down and build relationships. So, like like anything, I think you know some of this might be um, well founded too, because I think we may be guilty of some academics coming to say to a football club and wanting to take what they need data wise and do their own research to progress their their career. So we need to be careful of those uh, the 
personal ego orientated people that just want to progress their own agenda. So when we talk about any potential research that we're involved in, it's always, you know, we don't go in necessarily with all the problems and things that we want to answer. We always try to work with the individual or the club to work out what the problems are mm. and how we might be able to help through research, provide answers and solutions to that problem. Um, and that type of approach, and um, it's kind of what I came from my PhD on, it's like an action research approach. So you focus on workplace problems. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that's really the best way, Jamie. If you go in there, I've got loads of ideas that I'd love to research, but if I go into a club and say, I want to do X, Y, and Z, you know, one, they might just let me do it, but but two, you're not leaving any, any legacy or influence mm-hmm. or impact on the club when really you want to work with people that want to make things better and improve the clubs, improve themselves, improve the work in practice. So um, I'm an advocate of if you find good people um, that you trust, that you can build a relationship with, that want to help you and be part of your journey. And I'm talking this if you're on the club side and you're looking for academics, you know, they're not, all academics are not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to look out for the ones that you think you can build a rapport with and can genuinely help you. Um, and again, some of the questions people need to ask is the, the track record, um, you know, how thorough the, the proposals are and all this kind of stuff. So I think some of it is warranted, but I actually think, you know, I don't think I face much of it at the minute. I think I'd be seen as someone who isn't an academic and a scholar, uh, but at the same time has got a foot in the industry that is uh, someone who's trustworthy and can be useful to help solve problems um, and help, yeah, provide solutions. The you, you the reason we've got you on obviously is because you amongst other things you're the CEO and managing director of um, the Association of Sporting Directors and Sporting Directors are a, is a hot topic in Scotland just now, given Celtic's current predicament and the the, the rumoured restructure that's taking place. Um, usually, as a as a Celtic fan, the way things have really worked at the club from our perception is we've got. Peter Law, who's the chief executive of the club, with Neil Lennon, who was the manager, and we had um, Nicky Hammond in, who was head of football operations or technical director, one of those two roles. But really, the way it seemed to work was Neil Lennon went and said, I need a left back. Uh, the scouting team would find him a left back, and the chief executive would go off and handle the negotiations and sign the checks and get Neil Lennon his new left back, for example. So what is a sporting director, as people might need to understand it, and what do they do in a football club? Where in that scenario, in that structure, would the sporting director fit in? I mean, you, you've kicked it off, Jamie, in a, in a really interesting way. And I, I think what I may just, just link to as we start this, this, this discussion is that mm. um, when, when we've got any new innovation, and any radical change, which a sport, the introduction of a sporting director is, mm-hmm. because when you bring a sporting director and you're talking about changing people, changing our resources are divided, changing decision-making processes, changing power hierarchies, you know, when whenever you have innovation, there's going to be some form of experimentation. Okay, mm-hmm. and this in this experimentation phase, there's trial and error people get things wrong and it also requires some kind of uh, structural change, architectural change to make it happen. So I think this, this challenge that we've, we've got at the minute um, and things that you've talked about, it, it raises, it raises lots of issues because every club is, is pretty unique in the way they operate things. Hmm. If we look, if we look broadly at a sport and direct they, you know, the, if the things I talk about is them being the custodian of club sport and performance, 
Okay. So it's a person employed by the owner or board to guardian the club's future, protect their investment, bring on the field success. They've got to be an effective leader and make good decisions for the short, medium, long term. However, as you've even said with Celtic there, it's not necessarily a case of just saying, okay, well, here's the sport and director model. Let's just bring it in and exactly as it should be or how someone said it should be and, mm. and position it in. There's questions I've got to ask and there's context we need to understand. And those contexts might be ownership, government, uh, governance, people and their skill sets uh, and all those things that we'll have to, you'd have to consider to look for. You know, what do you... And what we're getting at is what does a club actually need? Do they need a sporting director? Do they need a technical director? Do they need something different? And what is the gaps? What do they need to improve what they do? So I always think each club is unique. The roles will be context-specific. And the, the fact for many in the industry that the title isn't really important, but it's the roles and roles and responsibilities that are. So if we if we look at that, then that, that's really important. When I, I look for people who I'd say is like, um, people who are leading and doing great things. I would look to Dan Ashworth for at Brighton. I would mm. look to Vic Rorter, uh, Stuart Webber, and Michael Edwards, uh, obviously at, at Liverpool. So they're, they're a number of leaders in the game that I think are, are, are doing really doing incredibly well. Um, if you look at uh, you look away from the media, some of the roles that you'd associate with the sporting director. The first one will be support the first team manager and head coach. Now. Why is that? Because traditionally there's been a, a level of mistrust between the head coach and the football people, the managers and the football people, and the people on the board who are typically mm. seen as suits and not having that football now, so having not been in that first team playing environment. So the second one would be maintain a positive working relationship with the owner and the manager. So bringing someone in is trying to tackle that issue of high manager turnover and have a bit of sustainability and a little bit of consistency for everyone involved in the club. They've got to buy the best people to look after individual departments. They will sometimes look at a playing philosophy uh, that might stretch between the first team through to the academy. They'll look after a scouting network. Uh, they'll bring players in and importantly, bring players out. Mm. So we often talk about recruitment as if that's just one way, but actually uh, one of the sporting directors biggest strengths to any owner, chairman, board is also trying to get players out and move them on and either do that managing uh, the risk and hopefully trying to make um, make uh, financial gains during that, that mm. period. They will oversee the academy and development teams, uh, sometimes linked with the community foundations for talent ID, look after the performance departments and then look after the general environment but like, like I said Jamie, you know each club is very unique. Sometimes you'll have a an owner that wants uh, to wants to make be involved in decision making, and we could argue say, well, he shouldn't be doing that. We should leave it to the sporting director. But there's someone that owns a club, and ultimately they can make the final decisions. It will come down to who owns it and how it's governed. Um, some will want a sporting director that acts in isolation and helps make those decisions and sometimes they'll bounce ideas and decisions off the owner sometimes they'll bounce them off the first team manager and sometimes a sporting director might be used to um, find solutions and answers that the manager and chairman provide, ask them of and then they'll provide potential opportunity to them a manager and chairman just might say right we've got X amount and we want to find this player and a sporting director will work with their team to, to find a number of possible opportunities and, and present them to them um, I think often though we will talk about some of the big high profile stuff that needs to be done right which is recruitment of the manager and recruitment of players I mean 
you can't get that you can't get that wrong or you won't be enrolled to do anything else. But there's there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes in terms of developing the academy environment, developing um, the philosophy to make sure um, the club, you know, it fits with a club strategy, but often the sporting director will be responsible for contributing or leading too. So it, it's it's complex and messy, but if we draw back to me earlier pointed, we're also experimenting, Jamie, with how this could work and what would work best for a club at any particular point. One of the things you've said there, you know, the sporting director role obviously comes with a lot of responsibility and they need to make, or they need to be in a position to affect change and affect power. And that's another thing that's sort of been the issue as people have perceived it as Celtic. Obviously, I don't know how the internals of Celtic are run. Celtic play their cards very close to their chest. But the way we've sort of fans perceived it is that we have the chief executive, Peter Law, and he's pretty much oversees everything that goes on at Celtic. Celtic Football Club is his fiefdom. Um, he's involved in player recruitment, involved in managerial recruitment. Last two years ago, when we appointed Neil Lennon, for example, he made a pronouncement in the press that Neil Lennon was given the job on a temporary basis. He was then given the job on a full-time basis. And someone asked the question, you know, what was the recruitment process? And he more or less dismissed it out of hand. He said, look, we got CVs in for the job. I didn't even bother looking at them. And people were kind of worried at this because it didn't seem, it, it seemed to be upending the norms of, of managerial recruitment. And that's something we'll touch on. But it seems to me if a sporting director's coming in, they need a bit of power. Is this someone that needs to sit at board level? It's not just another training ground appointment he doesn't just work in an office beside the manager he needs to sit on the board he needs to affect meaningful change within the club yeah so I mean you make some really interesting points there Jamie I think you know my observations of Peter and Celtic is that the the club has been incredibly successful yeah and they've had an unprecedented period of success that um that is, he is overseen, and every club is unique. And I think one thing we've got to acknowledge is, um, and maybe we link to a little bit of theory here is, is Goffman when he talks about, you know, people have front stage and backstage personalities. So mm. you may say something to the media that is your front stage, but really backstage, something completely different is going on. Mm. So when certain messages are released from the club, we might not be getting the full picture at all about what's going on. And maybe when you put comments like that, where you said about, you know, dismissing the, the CVs, maybe that was just making sure that the fans and the manager knew that he had his one, 100% undivided support. Yeah. And of course, we can always be critical of, of every decision that everyone makes. Um, but I feel like Celtic have had some unprecedented success. It's been incredible. For, for me, like the, you, you're drawing on one of the big challenges in the role is is where about um, someone should sit, okay, where the sport director should position themselves. And I wrote recently about this idea of art- architectural innovation and the fact that we're after radical change. And if we put a sporting director in within the organisation below the board, they've still got lots of battles to, to, to face because when you're on the board, you have, you have a seat at the table, you're a part, you have a... a you have put your part of decision making, you're part of resource allocation, and you can influence decisions. At the minute, when we speak to sporting directors, because we're in that experimenting phase, there's such a variation in where they position themselves. Mm. And generally, they'll view the role as above the manager, but a seat on the board is not always key. Right. And I kind of understand this with some of them because what they will do is they will go, Well, Actually, I'll just take the role now, and it might be a director of football, sporting director, technical director. And even though it's not on the board, what they'll do is they'll say, well, I'll get in, I'll build my relationships up, 
uh, craft my role and over time I'll be positioned on the board because I will show that I'm good at what I do and I'll develop myself. Mm. So I totally understand where people might take something less than what they would hope for just to get in and then develop themselves. And I can also see why boards might recruit someone below the board just to test and make sure they're the right person over time. Uh, one of the quotes, one of the leading sporting directors give to me is that in a football club, key decisions related to strategy are decided in the boardroom. If you don't sit at the table with the CEO and director for finance, how can you possibly ensure your strategy is presented correctly to influence decisions to and ensure you get the support you need? Ultimately, you can't. You can't really lead properly as a sporting director without being on the board. Now, for me, whilst each club is unique to the owner, organisational structure for any specific period of time, Whilst very few sporting directors don't hold sport, uh, board positions, they're almost classed as middle management. So while this can still help with that communication between the first team manager, head coach and the board to protect them and support the manager, um, it doesn't mean that they're able to make the strategic decisions to keep them in place. Mm. So for me, one of our biggest challenges is, is asking where the sporting director should sit. And for me, they've got to sit on the board um, and if you're unsure about the recruitment that you're making wherever they should be on the board uh, as a sporting director then you probably haven't done the right due, due diligence and they're probably not the right person to recruit mm-hmm. and you should take more time in recruitment to find the right person to put them straight in on your board and and make a real impact and do the job genuinely it's interesting what you said about Peter Law and the success at Celtic because uh, you know I, I'd agree with you completely and it's, it's a strange time for Celtic because I just the success that Celtic have had the and people keep referring to the structure at Celtic as in the way things work and the, the behind the scenes stuff and you know we're at a point where the structure of Celtic has been utterly dominant for almost a decade it f- it fails or it falters and there's this clamor for change amongst the support and and the word change is thrown about but no one really or or no one really defines what that change is. So Peter Law needs to go. The guy needs to go. And you think, well, that's, from my personal experience, yes, Celtic probably need a refresh and some new ideas, but just having a clear out of everyone that's involved with these years of success, you're letting a lot of expertise and knowledge and you're letting a lot of that just leave the building and you need to, you know, it's going to be difficult to replace it. And another thing that people say is Celtic need a sport, they need to follow the sporting director model. But from talking to you, that sporting director model could be any number of things that's, you know, it's, it's decided from within the club a lot of the time what roles that the sporting director will pick up. It's, it's not as just straightforward as sacking Peter Law, getting in a sporting director, getting in a head coach, and everything works now because we have this fabled structure. Where did the sporting director role first come into sort of prominence in British football? Do you know? Okay. <laughs> really good question again, Jay. I think, <laughs> I think you know, the, the sporting director role um, in Europe was, was knocking around in like the 60s and 70s. Mm. And if you look to American sports, they had the, the, the franchise and owners out there recruiting general managers to look after their operations for them. Um, what, what many would say is that it, it emerged maybe over the past 10 or 15 years. However, if we break it down and say, well, what are the roles of the sporting director? What are they doing? If we, if we look back, there's, there's been certainly occasions from the 60s and 70s where different managers have actually... I passed on some of their responsibilities, such as contracts, such as negotiations, to other people in the club mm. who've been better at doing that. So a manager in the past may have done the recruitment side of convincing a player, but then um, a secretary 
or chief exec or owner may have done the final negotiations. So actually, I don't think it's it's absolutely incredibly novel. Mm. I think certainly over the past 10 or 15 years, we've seen um, likes of Frank Arneson, uh, Damian Camoli, some of these, uh, and Les Reed, some of these trailblazers that I've, I've got in and really developed the role within, within England. So I'd say... I'd say that's kind of where it where, where it's emerged. Football is a contagious place, so when people see some things go well, they, they kind of shift with it too. If we look at, at English football in particular, we've had a lot of foreign investment, and that has changed the the culture and makeup of our our owners. As a result of that, they've brought in different ways of working, and ultimately, you know, the sporting director is just another strategy they're putting in place to make sure they protect their investment. And because these guys are networked and connected to different businesses, different sports, all around Europe, all around the world, um, they they when they like things and they see things that are successful, they they want to introduce them and bring them over. Um, like anything, though, just just bringing in a, a sporting director or even putting someone in place, there's, it's fraught with difficulty mm. because you then you've got to ask your questions. Well, who are the best sporting directors? What where should we find them? What what types of capabilities should they have? What should they do? Uh, I mean, we're only talking about what they do, but not not where they're from, what they should have. How do we recruit them? And what will uh, the media, what will the fans think of this recruitment? Yeah. And how will that influence our decision? All in the, the the more subtle things that goes into that that recruitment process. So, I think you know we've got some niche clubs that have had success, and I think we've got a lot of clubs that have got the role that the jury's still out. Uh, one thing I'm, I, I worry about is that we sometimes may uh, have poor poor recruitment practices for sporting directors. Mm. And as a result of that, we might be recruiting the, the wrong people into the wrong roles. And as an outsider, um, as a fan, we'll never know what is necessarily is really going on. Yeah. And as a result of that, it may be easy for someone to say, well, we've, we've tried the sporting director role and it hasn't worked at our club. Yeah. And really... We'll never know whether it's a true sporting director, whether it was the right sporting director, whether it was the right organisational structure, role, what the power dynamics were, who was making the decisions. Um, and a club might ditch it. Uh, and it might be an owner's strategy for surviving another three or four years <laughs> without, without lots of flack by by using the sporting director model um, and role as someone to you know protect them. At the, at the same extent, I've seen a, a couple of roles um, maybe over the I say over the past twelve months, where I I argue I think people have recruited a sporting director to make themselves look more favourable mm. to a potential investor. So they're almost doing and saying the the right things without necessarily having the substance to see through on the, on the, on the full project and idea to make themselves look more more favourable for investment. And obviously, with any any industry, there's going to be challenges. Football is unique because it's our, our passion, our history, our culture, uh, place, geography, all the rest of it. it it's, it's massive to our, our families and, and communities. So we've got that extra scrutiny on some of the decisions that, that take place. Um, but yeah, I think that's I think that's where we are. I think that might be a fair reflection. Don't know, don't know what that makes you feel, there, Jamie. No, it does. I mean, it's interesting that you touched on a, a couple of things that I wanted to make, bring up. Anyway, you talked about you know. It's funny that when asked, you know, the emergence of sporting director and the importance of it, we had Celtic way back in 1997 had a general manager. That was the, the, the guy's role. His name was Jock Brown. He was a he was a qualified lawyer turned football pundit and commentator and columnist. 
and he was brought in by Celtic's then owner Fergus McCann to be a sort of um, to sit in the middle of the board and the manager and he was he was the general manager so Tommy Burns the manager at the time would for example identify positions and then Jock Brown would work with the scouts and do a bit of negotiating and he was plonked in the middle of this situation called the general manager and that was back in 1997 and yeah. he was he I'm not sure I might be telling you something you already know but at the time he copped a lot of flack and he was seen as a sort of bad guy in fact he only lasted a year in the role because the team failed and everyone sort of looked at it and went okay whatever this newfangled general manager role is, it just doesn't work. We need to get rid of it. So that sort of coloured a lot of people's perceptions in the game of, of what, uh, you know, putting someone in between the manager and the board, especially in Scotland, it's it's covered the, it's caused a lot of scepticism, I feel. Secondly, when you mentioned that, that football is contagious, I mean, we just have to look across the city at Rangers. A lot of Celtic fans who, it's almost unthinkable that when you, when you look at it this way, but Celtic have had the, successful structure the successful model for nearly a decade Rangers win the league once in 10 years we are now immediately looking at Rangers and going well god they've got Ross Wilson and Ross Wilson came for Southampton and he's been in the game since he was like whatever, 21 or 18 or something he's a really top level operator we need the sporting director because Rangers have got a sporting director um, and that, that's the way sort of Celtic fans have, a lot of Celtic fans have been looking at it recently When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Just on the scepticism, there is a lot of scepticism about the role, particularly in Scotland, where, you know, people's ideas about the, the sort of top level, most influential football commentators and columnists have been doing this for 20 or 30 years. And there's a lot of scepticism about the football director role. What do you make of that, the scepticism in particular? Yeah, I think the, the free thing you talk about there, Jamie, I think your example is brilliant and a perfect example of, mm. of Celtic trying something 
um, and someone taking a flack for it. That's why some sporting directors want to, they probably have a you know one go fully transparent and have a strong like communication with the media and make sure it's quite clear on the role. And while others are happy just to stay behind the scenes and and not talk too much mm. around what's going on because it is a it's a real gamble and it depends on their on their character and personality on on their approach. Um, I think the the set the second point so. Ross Wilson is an incredible operator. Nicky Hammond, though, is an incredible operator. Mm. So we've got to come back to context, yeah. organisation, role, power, all those things. So Celtic could bring in, you know, wh- whatever this looks like in anyone's eyes, the best sporting director in the world. But if it's not the right organisation, if they're not empowered to make the decisions, it's not necessarily going to make any difference. Mm. So... We just got to keep some of these things in mind. Um, so bringing in bringing in this unicorn of a sporting director <laughs> is not necessarily going to solve the problems as mm. much as um, many people will say and tell the media that well, I am the answer and I I will come in and I will I will be able to do this. The reality is, it you know if you're coming into a, a complex club a complex environment. This is any club full of people, emotions, power structures, relationships, and you've got to work of that. And it just takes time. Everyone looks at Liverpool and says, oh, it's amazing, but they've got about six or seven years. They're a mature mm. programme where it's been run professionally, logically, reasonably. Where, where, where in football do you get professional, reasonable, and logical? Not that often. It's, <laughs> no. really, it's really difficult to find. So, uh, so I think with, with anything like that, we've got to keep in mind Celtic and right? And Rangers are both. Um, I know Nicky has moved on now, but two in- incredible operators there. Mm. But very different clubs at very different points with very very different organisations and contexts. So it's unfair to even compare what may have happened during that period between yeah. between the two. Um, but I totally understand how fans and how people, not just fans, because um, I'm a fan. Peter will be a fan. You're a fan, but we all have our own experience and expertise. So I would class that, you know, all direct directors are probably fans too. And all fans have probably got uh, different experience that they could bring to a football clubs. I think the other point you made about scepticism and how that exists in football punditry and also, you know, in terms of it, it's scepticism towards a role, it's fascinating because I think scepticism, something that, that I'm involved in teaching in football, but also in academia, and it's a, it's a really important thing. It's something we're lacking in society. And I mean, you, you can use a quote from Carl uh, Sagan, who was an American astronomer and science communicator. And he would often talk about the um, how valuable certain science communications was. And he said, it pays to keep an open mind, but not so much that your brain falls out. So why is it important is that we need to be sceptical, but we need to be sceptical with some clarity. So I get sent lots of opinions. Oh, so... So and so, this uh, journalist has said this, or this sports director said that, this owner man- manager said so. And I always try and put some of these questions to it. And we should put these questions to anyone who has a belief. So, what is the evidence associated with that belief? So, where is that ev- evidence? What have they got? Hmm. Then the second question is how credible is that evidence they're basing their decision on? Third question is have all the points of view been considered before they've made a judgment? And then the final one I would ask them is try not to become too attached to one idea. So just because you've believed it in the past, just because you've said it or even said it for a long time, try not to be too attached to it because you can change your mind. 
So those four things, and when you start to ask those, so when I see someone said, ah, the sporting director doesn't work, I just go, okay, I'm really open. I want these types of conversations. What's the evidence? Where have you got, you know, what's the evidence associated with belief? Where'd you get, where'd you get your evidence from? So who is it? Oh, I've spoke to a manager or I've just seen it happen at this club. So I want to know how critical they are in terms of how they make their judgments. And then I'm happy to say, look, don't, you don't, you don't have to dig your heels in. You can't change your mind. At the same time, they might be really valid critiques mm. too, because it hasn't gone perfectly well. Um, because we're experimenting, we're trial and error, we're trying to get it right. So with skepticism, there's like two ends of the spectrum. You either accept everything and reject nothing, so you're not skeptical, or you reject everything and accept nothing, and you're not you're not very skeptical. So it's probably not good to be either end of these. So the comments, anecdotes are fine, provided they've got evidence for them. And is the problems with the sporting director role? Yeah, of course there is. Is the problems in football? Yes, the caller, of course there is. But that's why we talk about the sporting director being a new innovation. We have new innovations. We don't always get them right because mm. the new takes time, takes trial and error. CEOs, owners, managers, sporting directors, journalists, uh, fans, we're all going to make mistakes. Okay. And we've got to expect this. Uh, what we need to do is when it's successful, we need to think about how it's worked. And when we do make when we do make the decision to bring in a sporting director, we've got to ask questions about why we're doing it, where mm-hmm. we're going to position them in a hierarchy, uh, and how how committed we are to seeing through that type of approach. Because it takes it is a radical change. So it's mm-hmm. going to take a radical change for everyone. It's going to shift things. People are going to lose power. Someone's going to gain it. How happy are people to do that? So with Celtic, you've got a fascinating one now because um, for all, all we know, Peter may have been putting in the groundwork for, of a master plan mm. uh, to um, move Nicky Hammond, for example, into a sporting director role and they were starting to put things in place and it may have been like a, a five, ten-year project that they might have identified. But a new chief exec now um, may want something completely different. They have their mm. own views. They're going to come in and straight away give power up the, and decision-making responsibilities when they're under extreme pressure to a sporting director. So it's going to be fascinating because they're only going to recruit someone that they explicitly trust. Um, so how that's going to work is going to be fascinating. And also, how they're going to be under more pressure than, than, than Peter is. Peter was. So when you're under that pressure, you've got to be a very strong character and give responsibility, power, and influence away to someone else uh, who's also very new to an organisation. So you've got an, an interesting couple of years ahead, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, really is an interesting time for Celtic at the moment. And like you say, there's there's a lot to consider. And there's, I think there's the fans as well, and this is why we're doing this podcast, sort of need a wee bit of a better understanding of, from within the club, how this, the sporting director might work out. And another area of concern that fans seem to have with Celtic is we need a manager. That That is without a doubt, we need a manager. We're also recruiting for a sporting director. You've previously touched on that the sporting directors can or tend to get involved in managerial recruitment. One, what does the what does managerial recruitment look like for a football club? How does a club go about finding a new football manager usually? And secondly, does the shelf life of a sporting director necessarily have to last longer than the new manager? Because I'm foreseeing a scenario, say Celtic bring in a sporting director, um, just call him Mr. Jones, and Mr. Jones comes in and Celtic bring in a manager, Eddie Howe. And two years goes by and Celtic don't win the league. I find it difficult to see a situation where fans don't turn on both roles and go, sporting directors know what, the manager has failed, 
the person who hired him made a bad decision. That person has also failed. Does, does there necessarily have to be continuity? I suppose I'm asking, does the sporting director have to have a shelf life of five years, but if the manager's not working, the sporting director's involved and keep replacing managers? Um, I think genuinely, Jamie, and, and maybe fans don't want to hear this, but it all depends on what the, cl- the club strategy is as well. Mm. Because, you know, at some point, if if Celtic recruit a sporting director and a manager that everyone wants, and they don't they don't win the league in the next couple of years, people will be will be spitting feathers. It'll be terrible, yeah. Jamie. People yeah, will be going mad. And it's unthinkable. I mean, it literally is unthinkable. You know, look at the, it, the fallout from Celtic not winning the league once. If that continued for two years, it would be unthinkable. But at the same time, Rangers are going to be thinking exactly the same. Yeah. So will your success mean that they are not doing the right things and Stephen and Ross aren't getting things right? Or will your will your um, failure to win the league in the next three years be a result of your failures or the result of their success? And I think what we what we need to do, and it's, it's very difficult, I can say this more broadly in football, maybe not focused on Celtic, is, is what, are you, what, what are you trying to achieve and how, you know, what are the time frames on that? So Celtic may have focused the past 10 years on, on winning titles mm. and done incredibly well at, well at it, yeah, okay? Have they focused in other areas of the club that are important to long-term success? So I don't know anything here, but mm. what the academy looking like? How good are the players in the academy? Uh, how good are the pathways? How good are the opportunities? Is that part of the strategy? Do they want to make in- income? Do they want to bring players through that are going to play for Scotland? That are they going to be able to sell um, to make um, to make profits off? Is it? Do they want players in that are going to come through the system and be people that are stalwart players for the club for the whole lives and be the the type of player that you, you all love? That is going to be a potential captain and and fighter there in the middle of the pitch. Now, all, all these questions you've got to ask. If it's just about winning titles, then then maybe you change your strategy. You build networks with 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 agents. You sign players that are going to help you win it, and you focus explicitly on that. And you don't give opportunities to young players. But I'm there's a trade off there. Hmm. There's a trade off there. So your strategy. You can't. You have. You're going to look at performance explicitly, yeah. But you also need to look at other stuff as well. So whilst winning. Winning um, should be the core focus. It's got mm. to be for for everyone. At the same time, it's also there's other stuff that you need to do too. Yeah. And what that might be for Celtic, it needs to be written down. It needs to be put into a strategy. It needs to be operationalized. It needs to be shared with the fans to say, yeah. okay, this is what we're going to do. This is going to be the mission, vision. This is going to be what we also do as a club. And then this is what else we're going to do. So it might be that we're going to win the league, but we're also going to we're also going to bring young players through. Mm. And so many of our minutes each year is going to be committed to players from the academy because that's how we do things here. We're also going to make sure that we're heavily involved in the community and CSR, whatever mm. whatever that strategy looks like. And then they share it and tell everyone. Yeah, I think that's important. Know. Yeah, if the fans know they don't win the league, okay, but we're still progressing. We're still putting things in place, and we're still putting. If you're bringing players through and giving them opportunities at Celtic, they're going to get recognised by by clubs all around the world mm. because they're having that opportunity um, in Scottish Premiership in Europe um, that very few clubs can offer in such a big brand such as, such as Celtic. So 
they're going to get watched and they're going to have opportunities to move on. That's going to provide value for the club. And we've already seen players that have signed and moved on and players that have been brought through and moved on. But is that has that been the focus over the past 10 years? To mm. All the fans have been the focus of the club over the past 10 years. Um, I'm not saying this asking Francis, Jamie. I'm just saying this more generally. What, what, you know, what has been the focus? And has anyone cared? Because as long as you're picking up the trophy, is anyone bothered? Mm, if we're bringing young true. players through because we're winning, is anyone bothered about the finances mm. because we're winning? So all the, all these things now, if we're going to ask questions, we're going to be challenging, be sceptical. I'm sure a lot of fans are. Let's 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 do it properly and let's demand something something more a more substantial strategy for for the club. If we if it's just that we, we want to win and that's all or nothing, then there's going to be years where people are very disappointed. Yeah. That, that that that's life. At the same time, you know, there'll, there'll be plenty of other disappointment from other clubs and other fans. Um, and there's, there's probably a financial means to try and position yourselves, you know, really well to, to win stuff. And I would say, you know, Rangers and Celtic in the league are really well positioned financially yeah. to have a, a massive competitive advantage over everyone else. So I think, yeah, I think there's, you know, it's a time to take stock, to reflect on past celebrations, past success. And where, you know, I always say, this is not for Celtic, Jay, at all. I always say, when, when something goes wrong, don't start asking questions, pointing fingers. Start with like, okay, where you may have dropped the ball first. So if I've, mm-hmm. made, if I've had a, made a mistake, or if I've got a problem, I've started to think back, right, where have I dropped the ball first and foremost, before I even pick up the phone to anyone else, before I try to solve it or speak to them, where have I dropped the ball? And then what could I have done better? So when I speak to people in the game, and they've got an issue, things aren't going well. Okay, where did where did that start? Where where did the problem? Where did you drop the ball? And and pick it up from there. So I was just gonna say, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think just now over the past couple of months really needs to be a time of reflection for Celtic and they need to, you know, from within within the club, they, they need to decide on on a model. And the fans, again, I think it's just so important what you're saying. It needs to be communicated to the fans. I think the problem that the board have is winning the league. The majority of the time, I know winning the league every year is not a goal you can set because it's almost an impossible goal. But it's almost something that if only the fans will accept winning the league every year. So that's like a constant that Celtic have to deal with. And then it's everything else. And and they need to juggle or spin many plates at one time. Um, just, just a quick question. This is another thing that a lot of fans have been wondering. Do you need to appoint a sporting director before you appoint the manager? Or... Could Celtic appoint a manager just now and then in a couple of months or a couple of weeks or whenever after the, the appointment of the manager bring in a sporting director or would that be unusual and possibly counterproductive? People get really excited about this one, Jay. Yeah, um, they do. Yeah, that's why I asked it because we get we yeah. we it's a it's something we see online on the, on social media and among fans all the time that no no Celtic can't possibly appoint a football manager just now because we need to get a sporting director in first. Yeah, what were the three things I said before? Professional, logical, and reasonable. Mm. Now, we recruit people in who are professional, logical, and reasonable. You can you can have a head coach and you can tell a head coach that you've got in place that we're also going to be looking for your replacement in the future. Because if you do well, you someone's going to come and take you onto another club. Mm. And if you don't do well, we're going to have to release you to find someone else because that's professional, logical, and reasonable. Mm-hmm. In football, we have this tendency to think that we can't be that. So, of course, you can recruit a manager in, then recruit a sport and direct into the model because you'll talk when you go when you recruit a manager through all eventual event all yeah. potential eventualities and your strategy. If you bring a manager in, 
and you'd never once mention a sporting director. And then a few months later, you bring <laughs> one in. Yeah. Then you're probably going to hit clashes mm. because it's not professional, logical, reasonable. So I think I think with anything like it's context specific, but of course it can be done. Mm. Of course it can be done, and there's plenty. The the coaches and managers that I meet, there's some absolutely incredible people, but they they often work, uh, and this is not explicitly for everyone, but they work on being honest and upfront and transparent. Um, and women football clubs, we've got to do better to be upfront and to be clear about what we're trying to do. So if we bring a sport and direct in, we can get that right. What what can lead to problems if then a manager then wants to bring in there, um, and we'll see this as, I say problems, Jamie, but not necessarily a problem. It's just mm. a potential uh, red flag, but it might not be. So if I was a manager, I might say, well, and, and Jay, you're the chief exec, and we're going to recruit a sport and director. I'll go, well, it's all right, Jay, if I sit on the panel mm. and because I know someone who's really good and I think he'd be great and I trust him and you'll be like, then it'll be hard push because I'll be on the panel because why wouldn't you let me on it? Yeah. Because I'm professional, logical, reasonable and the rest of it. And then they get someone in. Now, they might get that person in and he's a brilliant, he or she is a brilliant sporting director or they might get someone in and there's a conflict of interest. Mm. But either way, you have your eyes wide open. So I think when we're in those positions, it's it's very unique. It's very context specific, but it most certainly can be done. And I think you, you asked about manager recruitment, you know, yeah. managers, there's that many managers and head coaches about at the minute. A lot of people are, are not in work. That they're constantly anticipating when opportunities might come up. Mm. So they're following form. They're looking at communication from managers, owners and directors to see where it's likely they're going to sack a manager and they're building their, they're constantly reaching out and to make sure that they are in the, in the media or in the minds um, or the CVs are on the table for, for directors that, that may or, or may not make a decision uh, in the near, in the near future. I think when you look, look at recruitment of a manager, there's so many different strategies for undertaking it and practice is so varied across the game. I think the, the work that I've been involved in is that we're using a, combi- com- a combination of, um, and it's a bit cliche to say we're using data. Where data is available, we'll use data to mm. inform parts of the discussion, but we'll also um, reach out across our networks as broadly as possible uh, to make sure we know who is who is the new young up-and-coming talent. That means yeah. being, being aware of who's going through the qualifications with the different FAs speaking to the coach educators to make sure we know who the young talent is and not just know them, uh, the names, but also speak to them, mm-hmm. work out what the philosophies are, what their experience, what their ambitions are. So all the stuff that takes time and um, likes of uh, Southampton have been uh, recognised for the work that they've done in, in terms of compiling reports on uh, potential head coach recruitment. So I'm fascinated by that now. I work, I work a little bit with data, but I collaborate with people who work with data because they're the experts in it. Um, the, the stuff that I'm fascinated by is, is the is the people. So I think fundamentals is around people, philosophy, values, um, and we've we've kind of got what is a a set of twenty questions that probably breaks down into another five or six questions that we need to answer at some point hmm. for an interview. Uh, during an interview and, and after an interview right. to get a, a good picture of whether a manager would be, you know, what type of risk this manager, uh, head coach might might present. Um, I've interviewed many, many sporting directors 
mm. uh, chief execs and owners on how they do manager recruitments. I think what we've got at the minute is a is a very very thorough um, process. At the same time, though, the the biggest strength, Jamie, um, anyone can have is being able to who has worked with managers, who's got a network to people working with managers. So, for example, Jay, you could send me the the best TV, and you might have a really good record, but. What I, what I would really need to do is, is speak to players, support staff, owners, directors, agents, everyone who's worked with you in the past mm-hmm. to get a, a genuine picture of how you really operate. Yeah. So you might just say, Dan, I'm a family man. I'm committed. You know, um, you know, I, the fo- football and success and winning a league is, is, is what I do. It's what I live and breathe for. And, you know, family is important too. We're going to be moving up or moving down or or moving closer to the club, X, Y, and Z. Mm. But then you get in and then you uh, or speak to an agent or speak to people of West Union and actually there's evidence that, that, you know, that contradicts what you've just said. Right. And all we do that, all we can do then is start to put red flags in. And there's a mm. couple of red flags. Then you either go in eyes wide open with a, with a head coach and try to, to manage some of those risks or you don't, you look for someone better I think what we what we've seen now in like coach recruitment is that is that we've got an abundance of quality experience managers and coaches um in the UK. It's just in, it's just incredible. Mm. I feel like we've got a feast of talent. Um at the same time we've got like an ownership and people that are looking abroad for talent too. Yeah. And I would I would love to see us to put stronger pathways in place to equip um our head coaches our academy coaches our under 23s coaches our assistant coaches to, to step up into the role and not place again like we talked about earlier like this unicorn sporting director is going to come and roll the answers the same with a head coach and manager they're yeah. not unicorns they can't they can't do it only and we have to help them develop teams help them develop themselves so um i think um i'm fascinated by this is you, if you're recruiting a, a head coach, you're not just recruiting a finished product. You're recruiting someone that you can work with, that you can develop. And um, I'm fascinated by people who are committed to their own personal development. And you often find with these head coaches and managers that they are they are so committed to personal professional development um, and developing themselves. And it's trying to find those people that you can work with them, can fit into your strategy, and bring new ideas to it. Um, and I think head coach recruitment, sport and direct, director recruitment, if you've got the right organisational structure, can revolutionise a club. Um, and I think that's quite exciting. Yeah, and that, I think that's a great place to wrap up. And just sort of thinking about one thing you said earlier on about the front-facing persona and the back-facing persona, I think that kind of typifies Celtic at the moment. You know, there's a lot of talk of change. Celtic play their cards really close to their chest, which obviously they have to do. When, you know, they're not going to come out and before they've made any announcements or recruited any, they're not going to come out and tell the whole world exactly what, what they're trying to do. Um, but I think us as fans, we are looking at it going, okay, right, well, you know, it's been six, seven weeks since the manager's left and Nicky Hammond's walked out and the chief executive said he's leaving and there's this massive, you know, clamour for this sporting director and he must, you know, the fans are saying he must come in before the manager and this and that. And I think Celtic, are, I have no doubt that Celtic are doing all the right things behind, but it's just, I think when the time comes, a wee bit more communication would help fans understand. And I hope that chatting with you this podcast is maybe, and that was the aim of it, to let the people know, let people that listen to the podcast fans know that, you know, what's involved and these things are tricky and the, the role of sporting director and sort of educate people a wee bit. So I just want to say thanks, Dan. That was really, really good. I think people are going to love this. Thank you for your time. 
Jamie, thanks for having me on. And obviously, really difficult to speak when I'm working at, at Dundee United. Um, yeah. But yeah, I wish you wish you well for the podcast and, and for this year. And it'll be a fascinating time to see what to to what happen to see what happens with the role with the manager and how the club sets up the the store and strategy for the next few years. Thanks for having me on, Jamie. No appreciate it. All the best, mate. Thanks very much. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.